Welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Act, Protect, Engage Academy podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Chase H. We have another great episode for you guys. Happy Black History Month. One of the missions that I set out to accomplish this month was to tell some of the stories of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. Everyone knows the towering figures like Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Mrs. Rosa Parks, but there are many, many thousands of unsung heroes who played pivotal roles in shaping black history. In this case, we're talking specifically about the civil rights movement starting in the mid-1940s. I hope you guys enjoy this follow-up podcast to part one. Mrs. Irene Morgan and Jim Crow segregation on interstate buses. Ape. All right, all right, all right. We got a little musical intro. Thank you for joining us once again for the Act, Protect, Engage Academy podcast. This episode is entitled, You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow, Part 2, The Story of Mrs. Irene Morgan. Now, in the first episode, we detailed some of the incidences that led up to one of the most underreported and lesser known cases, but important cases of the early civil rights movement. All right, we're gonna talk about that today. But first things first, we have a few housekeeping things we need to get out of the way. All right, so in order for us to make the best podcast experience for our listeners, we need a few things from you guys. First, if you could please subscribe. So what does that do? Let's say you're watching the NBA All-Star game and you hear, bing, you know. If you look on your phone and you see the banner that says a new Ape Academy podcast is now streaming, you know to go check us out. What that does is it keeps you in the loop. It keeps you informed about when we have new content coming out. Plus, it helps us in the rankings and it helps us kind of determine our progress. So if you guys could... A quick click of the button to subscribe, that would be amazing. Secondly, if you have a few minutes, rate and review. So four stars, three stars, five stars, whatever you guys feel, please be honest because I look at all the ratings and all the reviews and I use that as a metric to determine what I need to do better to make the content more accessible, more relatable, more interesting, whatever, okay? So that really goes a long way. And if you have a little bit more time of review, whether it be three three words, two sentences, a paragraph, a freaking book, it doesn't really matter. They all count for something. I read every single one, and I really appreciate every single one. Lastly, 
if you could please follow us on social media. We're on a few different social media platforms. TikTok at Ape Academy Pod. Instagram, Ape Academy Podcast. And I think we're on Twitter at Ape Academy Podcast. So those are our three main platforms. And what we provide on those is kind of um, a little bit of more background information, maybe something that we didn't have time to include in the actual episode. We have pictures that relate to our episodes, extra information, interesting facts, etc. So if you could please follow us on social media, we really appreciate it. Quick thing, I apologize if my voice is a little raspy. That's why it's taking me so long to do this second episode because I'm recovering from a minor cold. The weather in Houston is insane. It makes no sense. It's like a yo-yo. It's up and down. One day, it's 80 degrees. Literally, two days later, it can be 40 degrees. It can be 50 degrees. Plus, my Eagles, unfortunately, lost in the Super Bowl. I lost my voice for a few days, screaming and crying myself to sleep every night. So, (laughs) I just got over that. So, please bear with me. All right. So, if you don't know who Mrs. Irene Morgan is, please check out the first podcast. But in synopsis, she was a young a young mother from Baltimore, Maryland. She was tr- this is uh the summer of 1944, right? So she's traveling to visit her mother in Virginia. Unfortunately, she suffered a miscarriage earlier that year. So she was going to visit her family to kind of, you know, rest reconnect with her roots and take some time off she is a worker in baltimore at one of the bomber plants so this is during world war ii and during this time the economy is really kind of jump-started by an influx of african-american workers both male and female and they're really supporting the economy because a lot of the soldiers most of the uh, white workers are are overseas fighting, so they need substitutes. And a lot of people stepped up and did great work in the country's time of need, okay? So she was one of these workers. She was on the bus riding back to Baltimore from Virginia. She was sitting in the colored section, so she didn't think there was anything wrong with her being back there. Unfortunately, a white couple ended up sitting behind her. So that's a big violation of Southern protocol. There's no way in the South at this time that a African-American person is going to sit in front of a Caucasian person. That is kind of like the really unwritten rules of Jim Crow. All right. And, and then there's a lot of laws on the books that support Jim Crow, but there's a lot of unspoken kind of etiquette, racial etiquette in the South. And, you know, people might not consider Virginia the South, but I'm going to tell you what, Virginia is as Southern as it can get. Now and back then, as someone who went to the University of Virginia, UVA in Charlottesville, it's the South, trust me, okay? So she gets confronted by the bus driver, She refuses to get up. She thought she was in the right. She didn't think she did anything wrong. She gets arrested for disorderly conduct. There's a scuffle. She's thrown in jail. She refuses 
to pay the fine for a violation of Jim Crow, of, a, of the segregation law. She didn't think she did anything wrong. She paid the much bigger disorderly conduct fine, but refused to pay the smaller fine for a violation of the segregation law. The NAACP was looking for cases to take up. They've been trying to challenge Jim Crow in interstate travel for a long time. They just could not find the right case. They needed a perfect test case to really kind of um, test the limits of the constitutionality of Jim Crow. And they found that in Mrs. Irene Morgan's case. So this is where we're picking off, um, I'm sorry, picking up where we left off, all right? We have a source. Everything we do on this podcast is backed by evidence from legitimate peer-reviewed scholars. So there's nothing that's kind of phony off of Wikipedia or we're just making it up. Today's source is from a book entitled Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice by Mr. Raymond Arsenault, okay? A great scholar of the subject and recognized widely by his peers, okay? So we're going to pick up right where we left off. Mrs. Irene Morgan decided, when she decided to defy the segregation law, she lost her initial case. So the judge, when she took it to court, the local judge said, you know what, you lost, you're done. She said, I'm taking it to the Virginia Supreme Court. She also lost in the Virginia Supreme Court. So what's the next step? The U.S. Supreme Court. So she was supported by the NAACP. When the Virginia Supreme Court denied the NAACP's petition for a rehearing of her case in September. Spot Robinson, who was a legal uh, just titan of the era, and he worked for the NAACP, he could not wait to file an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. In January of 1946, the court agreed to hear the case, and that's a big step on its own, right? Just the fact that the court was willing to hear a case about this subject was kind of taboo, like, ah, I don't know. People didn't really want to talk about it, was a big deal. Although this was the first time that the NAACP had argued a segregation transit case in front of the court, their brilliant team of attorneys made short work of Virginia Attorney General Abram Staple and his predictable arguments. The NAACP already had everything planned out. They knew what he was gonna say beforehand Right? They, had, they had done their research and they were ready to counter everything he had to say. The NAACP argued that forcibly segregating interstate passengers violated the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. It infringed upon congressional authority and threatened free movement across state lines. They argued that states who misuse their local segregation laws place an unconstitutional and unjust burden on both individuals and companies involved in interstate travel and interstate commerce. Quote, Today, we are just emerging from a war in which all the people of the United States were joined in a death struggle against the apostles of racism. End quote. Further, the NAACP asserted that federal law could no longer support, quote, disruptive local practices bred of racial notions alien to our national ideals and to the solemn undertakings of the community of civilized nations as well, 
these are all well well articulated arguments and it's really hard to fight against this type of onslaught from the NAACP. On June 3, 1946, the Supreme Court, with only one dissenting vote, sustained Mrs. Morgan's appeal in a carefully sustained means supported. So Mrs. Morgan won her case, sustained. In, in, in the legal world, when, so, when a judge sustains something, that means they support it, meaning, okay, you're good. So when you, when you hear in law and order, you know, objection, blah, 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 blah. The judge says sustained, that means you're good, your objection is, is, is valid. In a carefully worded opinion delivered by Associate Justice Stanley Reed, a Kentucky Democrat, the court explained, quote, as there is no federal act dealing with the separation of races, we must decide the validity of this Virginia statute on the challenge that it interferes with commerce as a matter of balance between exercise of the local police power and the need for national uniformity in the regulations for interstate travel. It seems clear to us that seating arrangements for the different races in interstate motor travel requires a single uniform rule to promote and protect national travel. So they can't, <laughs> basically what that's saying is it affirmed the NAACP's claim that the Virginia statute requiring segregation of interstate bus passengers was unconstitutional. But unfortunately, the ruling was very narrow because it said nothing about interstate passengers themselves. Its applicability to other forms of transportation like railroads or set a timeline or a plan to desegregate buses. Also, this is one of the most important parts of this. Also, this ruling did nothing to challenge Plessy versus Ferguson and their separate but equal ruling. So what the court is saying, look, we need a uniform rule of travel because this state by state law is unconstitutional, especially when you're going back and forth between state lines. We need our law. We need a single uniform rule. OK, unfortunately, right, they, they didn't offer any guidance about how to make this happen. As one New York Times reporter explained, quote, this week, seven nimble justices ducked the racial question and settled everything on the basis of comfortable travel. Of course, this came to no surprise to the NAACP because the legal team had kept their ex expectations very low. They were still satisfied that in their first appearance before the Supreme Court on a segregated transit case, they had won a solid victory. Their biggest concern was not necessarily the narrowness of the ruling but it was the method slash the prospects of actual enforcement by federal and state authorities. So the Supreme Court said, look, you can't, you can't have this, okay? Until we make one rule, you can't have, these states cannot have their own separate rules for segregation. You cannot have segregation on interstate buses. It, we, we can't have that. There was a good chance that enforcement would be avoided or the ruling would be outright ignored. Quote, as with all legal controversies involving, involving social mores or public behavior, the true value and meaning of the decision would depend on the reactions to it. So it wasn't the actual decision, it was the reaction 
to the decision that would really determine how big of an impact this case had. Because you, mean, you could say whatever you want. Yeah, it's unconstitutional. You can't have segregation on interstate buses. Interstate travel, meaning, remember, between the states. So if I cross from Maryland into Virginia, that's interstate. Okay, not internally within the state, from state to state. No one was surprised when the press coverage of the historic victory proved to be highly polarized and slanted along racial, political, and regional lines. To the black press, the Morgan case represented a tremendous landmark achievement. In the major publications of the Northeast, Midwest, and West, the coverage was, was generally favorable but restrained. In the South, of course, you can kind of guess what the Southern reaction was. Southern white publications downplayed the case's significance. Most politicians kept a low profile and were very hesitant to commit to an official reaction. You know, other than the, a few notable politicians like former Secretary of the Interior Harold Eichels and ex-New York Governor Herbert Lehman and, of course, the legendary Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., most of the political establishment had little or nothing to say about the ruling. So most people were just mums the word, right? We don't want to say anything. We're going to sit back, and once this decision goes out, because it's not like today, right? They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have social media. They didn't have Google. They didn't have TikTok and, and Instagram, right? It had to come. It came out slowly. As the press caught wind of it and the newspapers picked it up and the magazines, it, it, it was kind of like a, a slow-moving avalanche. Right. It, it, a storm was coming like you know like hurricanes they form out in the, in the ocean and they slowly form and they, and they head toward land and make landfall that's what this was in the immediate aftermath of the Morgan decision most public officials in positions to implement the ruling chose a quote wait and see attitude as time passed it became abundantly clear that the majority of southern officials had absolutely no intention <laughs> of course, of abiding by the court's decision and would not facilitate the desegregation of interstate bus passengers. Let's, let's, give you an, let, let's give an example. For example, Louisiana Public Service Commission official Clayton Coleman vowed that segregation among interstate passengers would, quote, continue to be enforced and observe that no racial mixing will be allowed until the Interstate Commerce Commission ICC for short, validated this Morgan ruling. Alabama Governor Chauncey Sparks criticized the decision, calling it, quote, fertilizer for the Ku Klux Klan, end quote. And he also called it an unconstitutional interference with states' rights. We've heard the states' rights argument before. That is a common Southern argument. It's also a common racist argument. Some Southern politicians devised ridiculous schemes to find loopholes in the ruling. In Georgia, candidate Eugene Talmadge, who was running for governor, who was also a well-known white supremacist, claimed that the ruling would, could be easily nullified, right? I have, a, I have a plan that could easily blow this out the water. Under his plan, black passengers passing south through Georgia would have to, quote, have to, quote, get off 50 feet from the Florida line and buy another ticket. <laughs> so that would avoid the ruling because technically, hey, 
it's not our law. You, you're getting off right before you cross the state line. You got to buy another one. Okay, so it's not technically not interstate because you just bought another ticket. Mississippi Governor Thomas Bailey also expressed his defiance. Quote, segregation will continue down here. Neither the whites nor the Negroes want it any other way. In the wake of the Supreme Court decision, some bus companies quickly ordered the desegregation of interstate buses. Others virtually ignored the decision. In some cases, the orders were issued but later reversed after state officials pressured executives to maintain the old arrangements. And since there was absolutely zero, when I mean zero, I mean zero, none whatsoever, no federal pressure from the ICC or the Justice Department to actually enforce this ruling, there was no sense of urgency, and the likelihood of desegregation quickly faded away. Unfortunately, by mid-summer 1946, civil rights advocates began to realize that the Morgan decision was a paper tiger. What is a paper tiger? Meaning, it looked good on paper. It looked fierce. It looked scary, but there was no bite. There was no teeth behind it. Strict segregation continued to be the norm on most interstate buses, and the number of racial incidents actually increased on buses. The result was confusion and disillusionment among interstate travelers on buses and trains, where there was uncertainty about the rules' applicability. So no one knew what the heck was going on, right? What is happening? The Supreme Court says that there's no more, there shouldn't be any more colored and white section, but there's some states have them, some bus companies have them, some don't. It's super confusing. No one knows what's going on. At this point, the NAACP was in a really, really tough position between a rock and a hard place. Leaders were forced to backtrack from their initial excitement to a much more scaled down, limited appreciation for what the Morgan case represented. Represented, And that was a really, really small victory, a significant one, but a small one, right? A stepping stone. You got, you got, to, you got to take those, those small bites, right? In this era, you're not going to score a knockout with the first punch. Legal historian Mark Tushnet writes that the Morgan decision was, quote, or the Morgan decision, quote, cast doubt on northern anti-discrimination statutes, which the NAACP surely could not have welcomed, and by apparently leaving decisions about passenger seating to the carriers themselves, Morgan drew the NAACP in a direction of attempting to devise a constitutional challenge to decisions by private operators of buses rather than decisions by state legislatures. Okay, so this is a little bit of a complex legal issue. Basically, what, what uh, Mr. Tushna is saying is that the goal of the NAACP was not to challenge the, the, the policies of individual bus companies, but it was to, to show that in the proof that having segregated seating on buses and trains moving from state to state violated the U.S. Constitution. However, because the federal government was not putting pressure to, for enforcement, it looked like the NAACP was really attacking individual companies' policies, which was not their, their, it was not their intention. They wanted to prove that it was unconstitutional to have segregation, period. But they had to start somewhere. And, it, and they decided that it was easier to challenge it federally, right, meaning interstate, between states, 
than on local individual levels. But what happened was since no one was enforcing it, it began to look like they were kind of targeting like the individual decisions of small companies, which is which was out of context. And I'm about to repeat myself. <laughs> I got ahead of myself. Points uh, put simply, the decision's impact was blunted by shifting focus from reforming state legislators to regulating private businesses. State action as the primary defense of segregation lay at the heart of the NAACP's claim of unconstitutionality via the 14th Amendment. So they really wanted to attack the government, the government mechanisms that allowed this type of discrimination to take place. That was their goal. Legal theorists attempted to devise a new strategy to attack privately enforced segregation, but were unsuccessful. Ultimately, they chose to lobby Congress for legislation outlawing private discrimination and of applying pressure to persuade private businesses to reconsider their own internal segregation policies. In reality, this meant that Jim Crow travel was still going on strong with no end in sight. Despite these difficulties, the efforts of the NAACP were widely praised. This is a legendary case. Even though the result wasn't quite what the NAACP wanted with as far as the enforcement, just the fact that they got a victory concerning segregation was huge. Their efforts were praised widely by civil rights activists, including Mrs. Morgan herself. During this time, Mrs. Morgan left Baltimore for New York City, where she found work as a, as a practicing nurse. Mrs. Morgan was confident that the Supreme Court's decision would, quote, abolish Jim Crow for Northerners going south. And she also declared that, quote, the insult and degradation to colored people is gone. Unfortunately, and sadly, segregated transit remained firmly in place. The heroics of Mrs. Morgan was largely forgotten and the NAACP moved on to fight new battles on different fronts. Yet, despite their disappointment, Thurgood Marshall and his colleagues did not let the Morgan case derail their plan to demolish Jim freaking Crow. And that's the end of part two. <laughs> so, um, really, the moral of this story is that in the mid to late 40s, what I should say is the mid to late 40s is really the infancy of the civil rights movement, right? There were victories won, but it was still so early, right? I mean, the, the, the country was emerging for World War II. There was still a lot of uncertainty and chaos as veterans were returning home. And you would think that when you fought for your country, you went overseas and you wore the uniform and you, and you fought, you bled, and many of your friends died, you would come back to a better situation but that was not the case and, and I think that these early cases the early victories are really in, indicative of how long this struggle went on for right if you kind of look at the textbooks and you believe you know the media out there and kind of the, the mainstream perspective you would think that the civil rights movement really started with Brown v. Board and started with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the uh, sit-ins and the uh, bus boycotts, uh, boycotts. But it really started in the 40s. Um, black folks were tired, man. I mean, it was 1944. At this point, they, we had fought in multiple world wars. 
Um, and African Americans were not getting the respect they deserved. And Mrs. Morgan's frustration on that warm day in 1944 really kind of summed up the frustrations of an entire uh, race of people. And we're going to talk about this more in the next podcast. And we're fast forward to 1968. I can't wait for this. We're talking about the Olympic, the Olympic Games of 1968 in Mexico City and the defiance of two brave or three brave American athletes. God bless you guys. Stay safe. Love y'all. Remember, God, your family, your country in that order. Stay safe. Stay vigilant. Educate yourself. Read a book. Don't believe what you hear out here. God bless y'all. Ape. Check us out. We're going to have a new podcast. Uh, let me see. It'll be a few days. I always do my research, so give me a few days. We'll have a new podcast out. You know, black history isn't just restricted to the month of February. It's every day. It's American history. So we're not going to stop with black history because black history is everywhere. Stay safe, y'all. Love y'all. Hey.